Welcome, everyone, to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips too. So let's get the show started. Welcome to our listeners around the world via the podcast, our listeners on our FM station in New York, and our listeners on our two Philadelphia radio stations. It's Tuesday evening drive time for you. Great show today. We'll start with a fantastic interview with D'Antonio's Catering Company. And then we will be talking to the Fishtown Pickle Project about their Feast of the Seven Pickles. And we will end this fantastic show with a fantastic interview with Kismet Bagels. Chef Gene, introduce us to your fabulous guest. It's such a great honor to introduce not only a friend, but a seasoned caterer, somebody who takes sustainability and local to a whole new height. John D'Antonio of D'Antonio's Catering. Welcome, John. Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs. Gene, what an honor. What a, what a great honor. I really, really appreciate you having me on. John, I, you know, there's not a lot of people who've been in the industry uh, as long as I am. Um, so I know you started probably around age three because you're much <laughs> younger than I am, or at least looked that way. Tell us a little bit about how you got started and what what made you bring D'Antonio's Catering into existence and a little bit about your background and, and love of food. All right. Well, um, I started the business when I was 21, 1987. Came about it in a very crazy way. Um, I was actually a drug addict, and I went and ran from New York City and Philadelphia and uh, lived in Mexico and traveled through Central America to get off drugs, believe it or not. And then I went to Europe and traveled all through Europe. I did that for about a year and a half. I, I uh, drove from Philadelphia to Guatemala, and I drove all through Europe. And when I did it, I realized there was so much good food. I'm Italian. My grandmother taught me how to cook when I was a kid, and I never really thought I'd do it for a living. But going through that really rough stage, you know, with drugs and then getting straight on the road and, and eating and enjoying food and being in Italy and Spain and France and all these amazing places. I said, you know, I, I could do this. Like I, I could totally do this. And when I came back to the States, I um, was on my way to Hawaii to do it, believe it or not. And I ended up finding a little deli in uh, Northeast Philadelphia and uh, I bought it. And that went from a deli to a, you know, a catering business that I've been doing ever since. Well, I mean, your catering business has, you know, grown a great deal from that little deli stage. Uh, you did a lot of work with your archdiocese for a while. I know you were doing, you know, a lot of different projects and taking on a lot of big events as well. You really put a focus on local and sustainability to the point where you went out and have purchased a farm. You have gone out and acquired your fish buying license, which is not something that's very common. And really for caterers, I've never heard about that before. We always use fish buyers independently. But you have this great love for using absolutely the freshest, best ingredients 
that we can do. Tell us a little bit about the farm, the fish buying license, and what what else you're doing to support local and small farmers. Sure, sure. And that goes back to Europe and, and Central America, where I, 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 I came, you know, from the United States way of eating and went to the European and indigenous peoples and, and saw food for really what it was and how different it was and, and how it was almost medicine to these people a lot of times. And, and I, I didn't have a lot of money, so I ate, you know, cheaply and, um, but I ate great. And, and that really, I, I think was gave me a love for fresh foods and, and just real food. And, and I, I love fishing. It's always been a hobby of mine. And, um, so I've been, always been great at, uh, making fish dishes and, you know, being Italian, doing the seven fishes. It was always a big part of our lives. So when I went into business, I, I was really just a little deli. I didn't know anything about food. I mean, we, we started delivery, we started a delivery service and that really put us quickly back in the eighties. It wasn't the most popular thing, you know, delivering food. And I quickly went into the catering business and I remember making my own turkey back then being like, that was the thing, you know, I'd make turkey hoagies with my own turkey. I try to get the best bread and, and I wasn't sourcing so locally, obviously back then as not many people were, but um, when I got married, my wife really had a love for nutrition and, and fresh foods also. And, and, and studying nutrition and movement. And, and we, um, we adopted kind of like the Weston A. Price Foundation's model for eating for our family. And since I was in the food business, you know, I wanted to incorporate that into catering, which wasn't the easiest thing to do back then. I, and it's still not the easiest thing to do. People are very open to it now, and, and, they, and they want it, and they search it out. But, you know, if you have a job for a 1,000 people, they don't want to spend the money necessarily to source everything locally. So that's, that's always a, a challenge, but, but the passion has never gone away since making the fresh Turkey and um, trying to get the best bread and, you know, ripening my own tomatoes and then start growing, growing the stuff and trying to source it locally. And it got easier and easier. Um, now what we do is um, we it's come full circle. So we bought a farm um, like this. It's, a work in progress. This year we had four pigs. Um, we, they're about 35 pounds when we got them. And then they ended up at 400 and, and, you know, about 400 to 450 pounds. They grew that big from April to September, October. And so I butchered them myself and, um, we grew them, no GMOs and we used all local, local feed for them. And, it was a real great experience. I learned so much by doing that. Um, and then after the pigs, we um, uh, made, well, before the pigs, we made a giant um, vegetable garden, which was a huge learning curve. You know, we have, we sprouted everything from seeds, all organic seeds. Um, we uh, went way overboard. It was way harder than I thought. We had way more produce than I thought we would. You know, like we actually got way more than I thought we would, but there was, you know, a real learning curve. So next year will be a lot easier, but we grew everything. I mean, we grew peanuts, we grew uh, tomatoes, cucumbers, herbs, and just everything you can imagine, peppers, and even some unusual things and ginger and a lot of garlic and wasabi. And because I, again, being, being a fish guy, I really love 
fish and tuna and sushi. It's, it's kind of my hobby. We sell a fair amount of sushi now, mm. but um, it's always been my hobby um, since I first got married. The um, before the farm, I would have to try to source things, um, you know, through through the the produce center in in Philly, and it wasn't always that easy. Now it's easier, but in all honesty, it's kind of hard to put it together throughout the year. So I'm building that back up now since COVID, um, you know, my resources to use sustainable stuff. So I have enough eggs to last me, you know, almost all my business because we have a lot of chickens, but um, not much else at this time of year. So it's a little bit of a, a struggle sometimes, but I love it. It's really such a novel approach. I have to give you a lot of credit for that. There's not many people out there willing to take that. You know, kitchen gardens are not unheard of, and you know, putting beehives on a on a larger, you know, on a rooftop or doing things like that is is fairly common in the city. But you know, when you're getting out there and you're talking about raising pigs and and slaughtering them and butchering them, and you know, there's just nothing better than that utilization and that. You know, understanding, and, and obviously it carries over to your food because if you have a love of what, you know, you're growing at and that love that you have in doing that, getting your hands in the soil and, and working with the animals, that's going to carry over into the quality of the food you're producing. And, and so, you know, I, I, I look forward to, you know, coming out and, and breaking bread with you and, and sampling some of your stuff because that is just absolutely marvelous. And it is amazing how fast pigs grow. You know, coming from an agricultural college and understanding agriculture, and my wife always kids me with, you know, why can't we get a pet pig? And I was like, that's fine. We can certainly get one, but just understand of the year I'm going to butcher it. And um, that yep. usually yeah. becomes, no, forget the pet pig. But, you know, that's a really wonderful thing. So the commercial fish buying license, how did that come about? I mean, what what's the benefits about that to you and to your, more importantly, what's the benefits of that to your clients and our listeners who will become future clients? Yeah, I think I think that's a really interesting story, Gene. Everyone everyone watches Wicked Tuna and they and they see these fish being sold for thirty thousand dollars over in Japan, forty thousand dollars. The first fish of the season is a very auspicious fish because that can sell up to a million dollars in Japan. doesn't mean all the fish sell for a million dollars, but it's more of a status symbol in Japan. The first fatty tuna coming from the States doesn't have to be the States because that's generally where the, some of the best tuna comes from. And then they'll sell that on auction and could be up to a million dollars. Unfortunately, the guys who are catching these fish, they're, they're getting paid six dollars pound for these fish um maybe ten dollars maybe thirteen dollars there was a time when they were getting paid thirty forty dollars a pound for fish that went to japan but not not generally now i only talk about the fishery that that's happening in north carolina there is a fishery that happens in uh up north in massachusetts maine uh georgia's bank new finland and stuff like that i don't know but i i know kind of what the price is it are and it it can be as low as six dollars a pound sometimes even cheaper so what's happening is these guys if you can picture this these guys are getting up at midnight two o'clock in the morning going out 80 miles sometimes 40 miles going in rough seas 
hooking an 800 pound tuna, taking two or three, you know, take two hours to get out there, sometimes longer, an hour or two to bring the thing in, get it in, you know, safely and where it's not getting all mangled, collar it, ice it. You know, they might be allowed one or two a day, get that fish in on ice, take it back to the fish house to sell it. Now, there's Japanese buyers waiting there, but what happens is these guys have to sell the fish. They have no choice. You can't store it really anywhere. They have to go out the next day because the regulations are tight. You have to fish every day. You can't, like, wait a day or sell your fish. So you, you have to sell it to the fish house. They take a cut. You have to pay them to, to drop it off. And then the Japanese buyers take the fish. They core it. They check it. Then it goes to auction in Japan, and these guys don't even see the check for months after it gets there, and they don't know what they're going to sell it for. So I've done this a number of times. I've caught hundreds of these fish myself um, and witnessed this. So my idea was, why don't I just sell it? I mean, if you're only getting 6 or $7 a pound for quality bluefin tuna with Toro that's better than anything most of these listeners, most listeners have ever seen, or or will never see in the United States, um, I'll give you the money. I'll sell the fish. I'll sell it to my customers. Um, so that's what got me, you know, that's what that's what uh, put me there. So what a wonderful idea. I mean, you're getting, you know, premium quality tuna that is selling in Japan for big dollars, and you're bringing it in at, you know, the wholesale price right off the boat. You, know, you can't beat that. I mean, obviously, I, I can't wait to come over and have some sushi with you. Uh, yeah. You know, what, what a wonderful, what a wonderful opportunity for your clients and for future clients to be able to enjoy some of that. And it is such a tough business, the fishing business. And you know, and and depending on where you're getting it from, I remember some years ago in uh, off the coast of Delaware, they a guy brought in you know a, a record tuna. But by the nature of the fish, the mercury level in that tuna was really high. And they told him, like, well, you're only going to be able to eat, like, you know, X amount of pounds of it a year. Right, and, you know, right. this guy had, you know, a, a, a huge tuna. And so, you know, you, you got to fish from reputable areas. you got to do a lot of things. It's a tough business. People think that, you know, the, the wholesalers – I know in the lobster business – I, I was working with some lobstermen this year. You know, they, they take seven years before you can harvest a lobster, or, you know, and that's why there's no lobster farms. And people are like, oh, but look at how much they're getting for them. Yeah, not off the boat. You know, they're, they're right, the same with right. you. So what a great, brilliant idea you got going on there is buying them right off the boat and bringing them to your clients. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah, I mean, think about this real quick. Not to cut you off, but i tell you something real, real fast. Sure. Think about it like a, a catering company or an Italian guy, not Japanese, but has the best fish in the world, real wasabi that he grew, hand ground on a shark skin grater the way it should be done, with like, you know, rice done well, the seasoning done well. Like, I can make some of the best sushi in the world, you know, and it's a little caterer in Philadelphia. Have to love that, and and uh, I will be coming out to visit and and, uh, <laughs> and 
love that. Talk to you okay. real soon. I know Amber, Amber is waiting for her invitation, I'm sure. Oh, but, yeah. Um, Especially if you're talking sushi and fresh ginger and everything. Oh, I eat yeah. ginger like it's candy, and I love sushi, and I've been hankering for some. Yeah. Well, I grew the ginger and wasabi, and wasabi's going to be a little bit of a learning curve, but I can still buy the fresh stuff. Well, the, the fresher it is, the more potent it is. In a way, it's so it's so mellow, though. It's so much more mellow than the powder stuff. And a little fun fact is none of the stuff that you buy in a powder is really wasabi. I shouldn't say none, but I say none because you can't find powdered wasabi. It's, it's horseradish. It's Japanese horseradish with green color. Now, you can get it, but I've looked high and low, and I've never seen wasabi says wasabi but look at the ingredients it's not real wasabi in right. the powder hmm. that is that is correct that is correct so john tell us a little bit about your client base well you know you, i know you do a, a lot of you know some high profile i saw your website a lot of the people that you've served throughout the years you know politically and celebrity um but you also do a lot of large events. You, you take on a yeah. lot of, you know, thousand persons, things like that. So, you know, tell us a little bit about the type of business that you're doing, where you, you know, you branched out to and, and where you're looking to go. Yeah, that, that grew from the little deli. I just realized it was, it was, you know, selling a hoagie or 10 hoagies or a hundred hoagies a day. Wasn't really paying the bills as much as I needed. So we, we went into catering. We, we did corporate catering and, and we, you know, I really had an affinity for it, and, and and we built a great client base. I mean, I've done, you know, I've fed, I've done amazing things. Barack Obama and Warren Buffett and Hillary Clinton and uh, Mitt Romney and Giuliani, and I can go on and on with all the political stuff. That was, that was um, always a really high-end secret service, checking out our staff, just, I mean, Gene, you know catering, right? It's like, it's so hard to get this great yes, food yes, out, yes. Of your comi- out of your commissary, in the, in the van, over to the, you know, up the elevators, what, asking people to please get out of the way so we can get up there and everything in the Secret Service. So all that is so great and hard and fun. And, um, you know, Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett was probably my favorite. Cause I had, he was so cool. He, um, he took a picture with me and he was, he actually bent over for the picture to act like he was giving me a stock quote in my ear. He didn't say anything, but I have a great picture of that. So that was um, the political end of it. And one of the funnest things I ever did was uh, made cheesesteaks for Aerosmith backstage. That was, that, that was really fun. If, if we have time for a quick story, I could tell you that. Absolutely. We do. It's like, okay, I really so, want to hear that one. Yeah. So, a buddy of mine um, does high-end amplifiers, um, so he does amplifiers for um, Aerosmith, and they wanted to go get cheesesteaks after the show. My buddy's like, you know, my buddy will come down and do cheesesteaks for you guys. Let him do it. He'll do it the right way. He'll do, you know, real good ribeye. He'll do everything the right way. It'll, it'll trust me, it'll be better. And uh, they're like, all right, great, bring him down. So I'm thinking, all right, this is – the only thing was, they only could only get me one backstage pass. It was only for me. And I was only supposed to see, like, the band, Lenny Kravitz was the opener, maybe, like, 20, 30 people, something like that. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, i got to do this myself. I know there's a union down there. I'm like, 
and I really want to do this. So I'm going to bring enough for 150 people just in case. And then I'm thinking, what if they don't let me use the kitchen? I'm like, well, all right, I'll bring griddles. I'll bring, you know, cafe foods, and I'll, I'll just make it so I don't have to really rely on anybody. Hopefully none of this has to happen. It's just catering. You think of everything. So I get down there. And I'm rolling down with my little cart, and I have all my food, and I'm getting ready to make cheesesteaks for everybody. And, and I go into the to the kitchen. I say, hey, to the caterers. I say, hey, man, I'm I'm here to make some cheesesteaks for uh, Aerosmith after the show. And, you know, I hope everything. They're like, oh, yeah, fine, fine. You can do anything you want. Out in the hall. You can't use this kitchen. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, of course, I had my, you know, little cassé foods the, and the burners and the griddles. So I literally – and then – Everyone wanted cheesesteaks, so I ended up having to make them for, like, 150 people, like, on the fly, by myself, just, you know, doing little ribeye steaks and cheese whiz and onions and stuff, and Steve Tyler's running around chasing, literally chasing girls, and they're trying to give them a cheesesteak, and it was, it was surreal. It was absolutely surreal. The backstage catering is so much fun. I spent many years with doing a lot of that myself, and it's it's really a very unique experience uh, doing all that. So obviously, you know, you, you're one of the caterers and one of the successes that came through COVID uh, successfully, and you're based in Philadelphia, and we just got new regulations now going into effect on January 3rd, um, you know, doing some of that. Um, you know, what – how did COVID affect you, and, and uh, you know what what uh, what what kind of did you do to pivot and and get through that very difficult time? Yeah, that was that that was that was uh, I'll never forget it. Watching every, for two days, just watching the phone ring and have every single event cancel, cancel, cancel. Till we till we got to the point where there was zero jobs, zero zero jobs. You know we had probably over 30 employees and I just saw zero. So um, we went with it for that week. And then uh, the next week, I just remember being around water work. It was stripe, you know, April-ish and the striped bass were coming up to Schuylkill. And I, was, I went out fishing like three o'clock in the morning just to clear my head. And I was looking at the city and there was no work, Gene, nothing, zero. And I, I said, I just remember, I don't know who said it, but someone said it sell when nobody else is selling <laughs> and I prayed and I had a it was a morning I'll never forget and I looked at the city skyline all my customers all the big buildings I go to and I I just kept selling so that's what we did and we prayed and had a miracle and we kept selling and there were people who were working and we went to those industries and by the grace of God we uh we came through it well congratulations on that I know it was a difficult time and you know, all the success stories that we have talked about, you know, on, on the air with other caterers, you know, everybody was forced to pivot and look at their business models and, you know, double down on their bets to make it through. And, you know, thank God we have. And hopefully, you know, with what the city put in effect today or put in effect for January 3rd, is it going to, you know, be very long and, and not going to have a big impact because, you know, as you know, we're still struggling, and we're struggling for labor. And, yeah. You know, we're struggling yeah. to get clients back, and it's a whole new ball game, and you know things like that. And I'm sure and you were impacted deeply by it. Yeah, and supply chain and pricing now—that's a oh my gosh. I you know on in that level, people, 
you're not seeing it as much in the supermarket yet, but you know, on our end, just getting product. I know, you know, you have to be feeling it. Others are feeling it. I, I feel it in places I go into, you know, and, and are looking around. What it's like to get product. Uh, you know, I was trying to get a very specific plate recently, uh, disposable plate from Cisco, the largest buyer in, in, you know, the largest supplier in the United States. Nope, don't have any. Won't have any for months. You know, it's like, wow, it gives you a real sense of what's going on, you know. And your motto, this is where it comes in, and I, I'm so proud to be talking to you about this. Local, sustainable, you know, deal with the small yep. farmers. Help them out. Do that type of situation. And that's, you know, what you do and, and what you're doing with the farm and the eggs and the chickens and the pork. And, you know, you have it now. And, you know, while grain might increase a little bit and feed might increase a little bit, you're still not getting the same impacts because you're getting it right off the farm. So, you know, kudos yep. to you for that. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, and you know what? It's going to push us to the farm, the supply chain issues, because I can just go to the Amish now and pay their price for strip steak and pay their price for ground beef because it's getting close to it anyway. And they have it. I have the relationships with these guys. They'll be happy to sell me 200 pounds of ground beef and 200 pounds of strip steak. Cisco, Cisco's not too fond of it these days. They're like, oh, well, yeah, maybe, yeah, no, I don't know. You know, trying, you know. But short rib, try to get short rib. But the Amish have all the short rib you want. Right, right. And, and you know, people don't understand how easy it is to go and set up those relationships and, you know, learn more about where things are coming from. That's that's what makes cooking and food so enjoyable. So, you know, it, it's really nice to see a caterer that's focused on that and, and really, you know, doing an, an incredible, you know, job with that. You also have developed a real big, like, corporate drop-off business uh, through the years, too, right? I, I know yeah. you do a lot of, like, you know, box lunches and corporate you know, drop-offs and, and things like that. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about how that's grown and, and you know, what people can do to, to find out about that for their business. Yeah, well, well, when when most caterers I saw kind of went to the model of bringing food to houses, which I really didn't want to do and didn't do. We just stayed focused on corporate and focused on, on selling again when when no one else was selling to sell and and getting customers who needed that so since day one we've been since COVID one day one I guess we've been really focused on getting very good at delivering hot platters hot hors d'oeuvres um, cocktail receptions in individual containers um, of course box lunches one of the things I did was I I got the domain PhiladelphiaBoxLunch.com which I haven't used yet because we've been actually too busy and not able to hire because of, you know, the health issues. But um, we sell a lot of hot platters now. So we, we make them hot at our commissary. We keep them hot in hot boxes and we ship them. And we've done up to, I guess, like 1600 hot platters at once. And for one job. Wow. That's, That's awesome. So, John, for our clients and our listeners out there, the future clients that want to uh, utilize you, how do people get in touch with you, D'Antonio's Caterer? How do they find you on social media? Tell us a little bit about how, you know, how people can get hold of you. 
Yeah, it's easy. Um, we have a we have an easy domain. It's P like Paul, A like Anthony, and then the word cater, C-A-T-E-R.com, like P-A-Cater.com. Um, we also are easy to find on Facebook and D'Antonio's Catering, Instagram. Um, we have, you know, some pretty good Google reviews. If you call my commissary and we're not there, you'll, you you can get in touch with me almost any time. I've always been very transparent on if you're a customer trying to get some information, you'll, you'll liter- you will literally get my cell phone and talk right to me and um, we'll do the things you need done whenever it is you need done. That's, that's what I do. You know, we, um, we're very progressive. We take cryptocurrencies. We, we think out of the box. We do whatever it takes. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. It has been a pleasure to catch up with you. It's been a little too long since we've, uh, had an opportunity, and I will be reaching out. It'd be nice to uh, come in and, and see your space, and you know, talk about it some more, and do all that. John, I appreciate you coming on to Food Farms and Chefs. You have a wonderful evening, sir. Hey, I really appreciate you having me, Gene, and uh, always impressed by your professional, your profes- professionalism in everything you've done. Every time I've seen you, and everything, so it's my honor. Thank you, sir. Have a wonderful evening. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you, John. Okay, let's take a break, and we'll be right back. To become a sponsor of our show and have your business or event promoted on every single podcast platform, two Philadelphia radio stations on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. evening drive time, an FM station in New York, and to the millions of Facebook users worldwide with access to the Facebook mobile app. Send us an email to either foodfarmsandchefs at yahoo.com or dining on a dime at yahoo.com. And we're back. Amorous Pollock, introduce us to your fabulous guests. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome back our two guests, Nikki Toscani and Mike Szyzynski, who are owners of Fishtown Pickle Project that is in Fishtown. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. No problem. So I'm kind of excited because this was a little hush-hush for a while, uh, but it's out there now, and people can, you know, buy tickets, but you guys are having a play off of the Feast of the Seven Fishes, which is um, a huge thing in December if you are religious, but you guys are having the Feast of the Seven Pickles. Tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, so just a really cool idea just to really highlight some of the pickle things that we're constantly doing and working on and uh, really, you know, expand uh, who we are as a pickle company. Um, you know, we're a fish down pickle project because everything we do is, a you know, a project and a work in progress and, you know, just developing what we can do for us um, and for our customers. Um, a lot of people think that pickle, you know, is just a cucumber item that we're all familiar with, but the word pickle is really endless. So we're doing a combination of some fermented items and some vinegar brined items um, and doing them in seven very different um, ways to just, you know, be different with it. I know. And I see that you're um, you're going to do a half sour pickle. Uh, so are you talking, taking like your, your full, like your regular sour pickle um, item and then just kind of cutting it a little bit? So it, it, but it, no, this one's going to be, uh, the half sour in particular is going to be different altogether. So it's going to be um, a fermented pickle 
uh, brined and fermented half as long. So it's a little more, um, the best way I explain it to, you know, customers at markets is um, it's a little more salty in the cucumber. It's not um, full on sour. So there's less acidic um, going on in there and more saltiness going on in there. And it pairs really nicely um, with two cheeses that we'll be doing um, with that one. That's actually the first of the seven. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I'm excited because I I actually want to sign up and buy tickets um, for everybody that's listening right now. It's going to be on December 21st uh, and it's thirty five dollars per person, if I if I remember correctly. That is correct. Yes. Yep. So thirty five dollars gets you a um, seven plates or pickle centric dishes or small plates. And um, and and it's benefiting uh, a great a great charity, a great organization. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Maggie Rehabilitation? Yes, McGee Rehab is affiliated with um, Jefferson Health Group. Um, they have a nonprofit charity specifically for McGee Rehab patients. Um, those of you who are not familiar, they, they are located downtown and they work with um, individuals with a you know, wide variety of disabilities. So um, we actually heard or learned about the charity from Chef Eli Culp. Um, he is collaborating with us in one of our seven dishes um, as well. So we thought it would be a great idea to not only collaborate on the food side, but also on the um, charitable side as well. So $5 from every ticket purchased. Um, and that's whether you're reserving tickets or you are walking in because we are welcoming walk-ins. The $5 will go to McGee Rehab, and um, the program supports art therapy, you know, horticulture, basically improving the quality of life by, you know, doing all of the uh, offering services that really make the patients feel alive and, and active. And that's highly important because, you know, no matter what, getting out and being able to, like, be, you know, productive and do something and move around always, you know, kind of adds like a positivity to everybody's life so you know i'm sure that it's a huge benefit for for everyone who participates in that yeah and it also helps them to um heal which is great and you know it teaches them you know certain skill sets too because i know i know nothing about horticulture but if i were to go into this program i'd walk away knowing knowing something that i didn't know before Exactly. Um, now, you are going to be actually having this at the Fishtown Social. And I looked that up, too. And that in and of itself is an interesting little um, location because they specialize in sustainable um, and local organic wines and, and whatnot. So you're, you're pairing the like everything that you're creating um with something that's hyper local yeah so the entire event is um focused is hyper local we're sourcing ingredients locally working with a ton of different small businesses that many um you know of your audience are likely have heard of uh to incorporate them in our dishes and then um 
Vanessa Wong, the owner of Fishtown Social, invited um, Mural City Cellars, um, which is a new-ish winery located in Kensington. So they're going to be pouring some of their wines um, to go along with the Feast of the Seven Pickles. Which is exciting. Now, I saw also you are doing a deviled egg. And you're you're adding yeah. in um, some of your pickle juice. I'm curious, like, can I find out what pickle juice you're going to use for that? Uh, so that one in particular is the little uh, collab we did with Chef Eli Colt. So it's going to have it's going to be um, the juice of a pickled pepper, and the pepper is on the sweeter side. Um, but we also are doing it with some fresh herbs and just doing a kind of like a lot of our stuff, just a traditional but unique twist to a deviled egg. Which so is, that is one of them. So, yeah, it's a, it's a pickled um, pepper that's going along with that. Yeah. And I'm super excited about that because, I mean, I love anything that's a deviled eggs. Like, I, I'm the person that, like, if you walk around with a deviled egg tray, I will probably try to eat as many as po- possible. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things. <laughs> And um, and that's, I, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is about deviled eggs, and like people, like you either. I feel like you either love them or hate them. So when I saw that you were doing that, I'm like, oh, I'm on it. <laughs> you know, a lot, a lot yeah. of people put um relish in their deviled eggs, and that's certainly well in the uh, the pickle family. And we're just kind of having fun with that. And, you know, the only the other thing that I was thinking of, I was like, well, how are they going to tie around? Because usually there's some sort of dessert course when you do a tasting menu. And, and I, you know, and it's it is like a tasting menu. It's an event. You're doing a wine pairing. You're going to have, you know, your products along with other local, you know, purve- purveyors that are third that are going to be there. And I was like, how are they going to tie around dessert with their pickled stuff? And um, and then I saw you're going to have Sweet Tea's Bake Shop. Yeah. Yeah. So she's going uh, to. Go ahead. Yep. They're going to provide us with um, their delicious flourless chocolate cake um, with and top it off with chocolate mousse. And then we're going to have a um, preserved blueberry um, preserve on top with a candied orange uh, peel on top. So it's going to be. Um, you know, two different preservation uh, methods with fruit on top of their sweet teas bake shop delicious chocolate cake. Now, I'm assuming that you're doing the preserves. Yep. So how long did it take you to 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 figure out like what you were going to do with the preserves and like how you were going to like pull out different flavors? So the, oh, the blueberry, the blueberries, <laughs> the blueberries in that one are going to be fermented. So they're it's just going to be another fermented fruit. We're actually doing that in another similar way with another one of the dishes. But it's a fermented fruit, which is really kind of the, acidifies the fruit and makes it a little more tart um, than it would be, you know, in its raw, you know, blueberry self. Um, so it's just a fun way to have it, um, and it's extremely versatile and. It's something to do in the prime of blueberry season um, to be able to eat fresh blueberries all year, not just, you know, when they're in season and, and local. So it's just a fun way to show that off. It is it goes a- well with the dessert. <laughs> it is a fun way to show that off. And, you know, it's definitely a way to show your ability to, to do you know, a lot of different things with, you know, what you guys do. So I think, you know, it's a great way to showcase 
your your skills, your talents and your delicious, you know, offerings, but also to bring in the whole community together with this particular feast of the seven pickles. Um, now, I am excited because I keep meaning to get to the store and I I'm going to like throw myself under the bus with this one. But I haven't actually been able to go grocery shopping on since Thanksgiving. So some of the stuff that I wanted to pick up is some more of your pickles. Um, you'll be able to do that at, uh, at this event, along with some other things. Do you want to tell a little bit about, you know, what, what will be there to, what will be offered? Will we be able to pick up some of the, the thing, the preserves that you've created, or, you know, is it specifically like the pickles? Um, what can we find while we're there? So I'll answer that one, Mike. Um, so we are going to have, you know, the, the, the whole goal of this event, other than it being local, other than it being for um, a good cause, we are showcasing some different fun, eccentric ways of pickling different foods. We're not actually going to be jarring some of the items that we're making for the Feast of the Seven um, Pickles. But what we will be selling on the side are our regular pickle uh, flavors, um, those of you who have grown to love the Philly Dilly Deli, the Habanero Dill, but we also will have, um, and I know this is an important one to mention, we just recently did a collaboration with Art in the Age and Sun-Dry Mornings and made a Bloody Mary pickle, and it's phenomenal, and we will have that one there at Fishtown Social to purchase on the side. I do know a few people, actually more than a few people, that love Bloody Marys, and they talk about Bloody Marys all the time. So that's something that I would, I definitely want to pick up. Now, how much, about how much, you know, are, are like, are your jars so that people know, you know, are, you know, do, do you Venmo? Do you bring cash? Can I pay with a credit card? Um, sure. So we can uh, take any form of payment that night. Um, uh, and yeah, there we uh, our pickles go for $12 per jar. The Bloody Mary pickle is $15. And that's because it has some high quality ingredients, including a little booze. Um, and just know that we are going to be also donating proceeds, some proceeds to the McGee Rehab Foundation. So anything that's purchased that night, you know that it'll be contributing to the cause. And if you're unable to attend for any reason, and I hope that you are, um, again, walk-ins are welcome, but if you're unable to attend, you can purchase our pickles either on our website, fishtownpickles.com, or you can go to participating retailers in South Jersey, in the Philadelphia area, and even in the greater Pennsylvania area to um, purchase some of our offerings. I know. On your website, too, um, just to let everyone know, they have uh, a, a store locator where to find your pickles, um, which I think is important to know. And now, where can our listeners buy tickets if they don't just show up, show up at the door? Yeah, so right now, we are on a wait list, um, but spots are opening up because I'm unfortunately not hearing back from some of the people that were on the wait list. <laughs> But what I would suggest is to, we have an Eventbrite page, which you can find, it's on our Instagram, um, the link in our bio is also on our Facebook page. Um, and, you know, Philadelphia Magazine and FUBU's actually just put out a couple of articles um, and the link is available there. So it's an Eventbrite link, the best way to find it is come to our social media pages, try and get yourself on the wait list, but again, 
um, I want to emphasize this. We are welcoming walk-ins. We really only offered reserved seating for half of the bar, so then the other half can walk right in. That's great to know. Nikki and Mike, thank you for joining us on the show, and I will hopefully see you on December 21st. Sounds, Sounds good, good Mara. So thank you. Thank you so much. Amaris Pollock, introduce us to your fabulous guest. Hi, everyone. I want to introduce you to the owners of Kismet Bagels. They are they have exciting news for everybody who is in the Philadelphia area. Jacob and Alexander Cohen, welcome to the show. Thanks so thank much for you. having us. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> no problem. So um, you guys weren't initially in the the world of the culinary world. How did you get started? How were you introduced to, you know, co- like the culinary world, the cooking and, and baking? It's funny. So I grew up with a father, aunt, and grandmother all in the food and nightclub business in Philadelphia in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. So I was around it. But I never myself was actually cooking or baking of any kind. I was just indulging and enjoying. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was somewhere in the blood, I suppose. Um, and by the time, you know, March 2020 came, we were all locked inside. I just naturally gravitated towards the kitchen. And with my, my job shut down at the time, I, I had nothing to do. And um, started baking bread every day like most people. And, um, you know, within a couple of weeks, uh, Alexandra had a craving for bagels and I thought, well, I'm making bread, why not bagels? And it just sort of naturally occurred from there. Now I read somewhere that you actually found a YouTube recipe and in, you know, tested it out. I feel like most people are going to be like, what was the YouTube recipe that started this all? <laughs> it was literally just a recipe on Google. Actually. Yeah, it was just like a, some a, blog of like, you know, homemade New York bagels. Um, yeah. And yeah, we just looked it up and looked at like the best, best bagel recipe. And, you know, it's pretty generic, honestly. Yeah, we tried our hand on it and. And I'm notoriously a terrible baker. I, you know, I love to cook. Uh, I love just like throwing things together, but like actually, you know, measuring and doing all that with ingredients is, I'm notoriously pretty bad at that. Um, and I actually was one that was like, all right, let's, let's put the, let's just try this recipe out. And I remember we, you know, put all the ingredients together. And when the bagels came out of the oven, it was like biting into like the best bagel we've ever had. It was it was really surreal. <laughs> so is that <laughs> so is that what like because I feel like that kind of led into you giving the bagels to like family and friends. Uh-huh. Yep. We started giving them to family and friends, leaving them in their mailboxes because we couldn't actually physically be near anybody. And we were getting phone call after phone call. They were absolutely incredible. And we thought people were just being really nice. Yeah. Um, but the real turning point was when we post Alex posted in our Northern Liberties neighborhood Facebook page that we wanted to donate bagels to hospital workers and could we raise some funds from our neighbors to help make that happen and then one neighbor asked you know could we actually buy the bagels and you just donate the money and we started getting tons and tons of orders out of our house and the feedback we got was just unbelievable and we started taking orders a couple times a week and people would line up outside of our house and they kept asking for more and more and more, and it just blew us away. 
and we, 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 you know, we got a little notebook and started tinkering with the recipe and trying different yeast percentages and different hydrations and longer fermentation times yeah, and things and things we knew nothing about. We had no background. We, we were, we were just trying it, but all the while, even from the first batch, people were loving them. And I think the, the absolute like pinnacle of baking them at the house where we realized, okay, we have something here is Craig LeBon showed up at our house. Oh, wow. Um, and that was just like jaw dropping to us. Um, and uh, after that, it was kind of like, okay, um, we have something here. And it was around that time that we booked our first pop-up at Urban Village in Northern Liberties. And we sold out like 32 dozen bagels pre-order and it was just a mob scene. And, <laughs> you know, I think you also have to remember like that was so early in the pandemic and people were just clamoring for some sort of like togetherness and something to, you know, ex- to celebrate. And And I think, you know, you know, it was a heartwarming story, you know, husband and wife, you know, learning this new thing and, and everyone really got behind it. And um, from there, you know, May 2020, every single weekend from there all the way till even today, we've done at least one event every single weekend for the last year and a half. You have. And, and I've seen a lot of that on your social media. Um, you definitely blew up even more when you started getting posted um, and hashtagged on, on social media. Um, yeah. Now. I want to ask you, because I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to mispronounce this, but um, what is a Bailey? <laughs> a Bialy. Bialy, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, so a Bialy hails from Poland. Um, it is a holeless bagel. Um, instead, you form like a divot in the middle, and traditionally, it's filled with chopped onions, poppy seeds, and salt. Um, and they are not boiled like a bagel. They're simply baked. Um, you know, we have kind of turned the Bialy on its head and we felt like you can literally fill it with anything. Mm-hmm. And it's been so fun to be able to just throw different possibilities at this thing. Just yesterday we had a pop-up with Amanda Shulman at her place supper club. It was our second installment, if you will, in our little series with her that seems to be ongoing. Um, but we offered a French onion soup inspired Bialy with amazing caramelized onions and Gruyere cheese. We did one with um, like cream spinach, egg, and bacon from Primal Supply, hmm. dipped in sesame seeds, and then we did one with butternut squash, chopped apples, and pecorino cheese. So, I mean, the options are really endless with those, and they've been a huge hit. And the whole reason we started making them is because simply my grandfather used to buy them in the 80s and early 90s at our Sunday brunch, and I haven't seen them since then, and I just really wanted them. So we just learned how to make them, but it seems that there are a ton of people out there that were also really missing these things. Yeah. So it's become one of our top selling items. I was going to say, because I've never actually been introduced to one of them. Uh, so you are the first time I've ever seen one, but it is the perfect vehicle to just kind of be creative and put whatever you want and like have it be solid and not, you know, flop down. You can just yeah. have something that's like loaded up and, and it's a meal. Yeah. Absolutely. So that that is astonishing. Um, now, what are some of the challenges that you faced along the way? Oh, boy. So many. <laughs> I mean, learning how to run a business. <laughs> you know, we've never done that. Learning how to be a leader, be a boss, uh, learning how to be organized, how to scale at yeah, such well, an alarming rate. One, you know, we were in our house making bagels probably like the max we made was like seven dozen in a day it took us like seven hours to make a dozen uh, seven dozen bagels oh wow and then yeah and then we were invited to 
you know, use a real kitchen for the day to do our first pop-up. And that day that we walked into, you know, this like pizza kitchen, the guys, we like walked in with with our, with our teaspoons and our little cup, you know, measuring cups. And they're like, what the hell are you guys doing? Like, you need to weigh everything. And we're like, what? What do you mean? Like, what, how do you weigh these? How do you weigh this? And like, just like learning little things like, like that day changed so much for us. Um, yeah, just like little, like scaling up has, I think, been the most difficult challenging thing but it's been so exciting i mean like every month there's a new challenge in in scaling up and growing and you know moving from our house to then we worked went into a commissary kitchen and then we opened up our own commercial bakery and literally from that we have had some crazy nights where the power or electricity uh (laughs) shut off and lost you know like five thousand bagels and had to throw all that away oh no yeah, over, over proofing issues, just just all of that. Yeah, learning about yeah. dough. I mean, yeah. learn, dough is such a living, breathing thing, and it's yeah. so temperamental. And learning how to manipulate that and read the humidity outside and try and change your recipe on the fly. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> every day is so different. Yeah, with that. I mean, we've been through a bunch of challenges, but I think the biggest thing is that throughout all of it, we've been willing to get back up and figure it out. We've never yeah. quit, and I think you know, we're both so thrilled that that that's the way it went because we've, we feel like, although there's always things to learn, we feel like we've come out on the other side, you know, stronger yeah. and, and more knowledgeable. Been, you know, our biggest learning days for us, which is really Huge. cool to look back on. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you're notoriously known for is swearing up and down that you would never open a brick and mortar location. <laughs> and yet you are now here on food farms and chefs because you have an exciting announcement. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we are opening our first brick and mortar in Fishtown. We'll never say never. So yeah. we'll never say never again. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Like, things change. Things evolve. Your goals grow and change. Yeah. Um, we didn't have any intentions of really making this a business at first. It was just for fun and, and, you know, boredom and just wanting to help people in the pandemic. So then that grew into a whole business and we're like, okay, this is how we see our business growing in the next, you know, five to 10 years. And then that quickly changed. And we're like, you know, we actually love seeing people eat our bagels and getting to connect with our customers. We love going to events and working and talking with people. Um, So we realized that it just, you know, made sense as our next step to open up a shop. And I also think this this residency that we did from June to September at Fishtown Social, we did Sunday Sammy's every single Sunday. That gave us our first taste of like yeah. having a bagel shop, coming up with different sandwiches and doing more than just making a bagel and a container of cream cheese and throwing it in a bag. It's like, yes, we still love doing that. Um, but being able to, yeah, flex like our creative muscle. You know, I'm, I'm a professional musician in a past life. Alex was an amazing painter. So we have those like creative sides to our brain and we kind of look at the sandwiches and the bialis and, the, and even the schmear flavors and stuff like that as art and just expressing you know, are expressing ourselves. And so it just kind of feeds that itch, if you will. Yeah. Now, I also know that you've done numerous collaborations with other businesses and uh, your new brick and mortar location is going to have, you're going to have Sam McNamara, who is going to be making your sourdough loaves and pastries. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, pastry chef, Erica, I don't, want to mispronounce her last name but Pace actually okay (laughs) I was totally gonna mispronounce her last name I'm I'm known for that um (laughs) 
<laughs> who's going to also be providing fresh daily pastries as well. And then, yeah. um, and then Moonraker or Moon, yeah, Moonraker, Moonraker, yeah, um, coffee is going is going to be there, and they're a relatively new company as well. Yeah, they yeah. are. They call themselves like a bespoke roaster. Um, you know, they're not really looking to get their coffee into grocery stores or anything like that. They're really looking to work directly with brands to come up with their own custom blends. And they're amazing guys, and they're operating out of Kensington. They just bought a property. At fit in lehigh and they're setting up their own roastery there and uh it's really exciting yeah yeah and also you know working with like sam and erica it's really it's so fascinating most of the people that work with us and have worked with us in the last year and a half had little to no experience sam was a uh bar like head bartender at uh, mulheran's in fishtown and Erica was in a, at a tech company for a while and moved to Philly actually to start working at the hub as, and a, busser. as a busser to then, you know, work hopefully in pastries someday. But, you know, the pandemic, um, you know, had her lose her job like after two weeks of working there. Oh, wow. And then she found us. So mm. it's really amazing that now these people are like heading up our, you know, bakery, um, our bakery side. And Sam now is a with sourdough and creating these incredible <laughs> loaves and it's just so amazing to see these people blossom into you know these new new careers new passions yeah sam's our production manager and erica's going to be the manager of the shop oh wow that's exciting yeah um, yeah it's very cool now before i let you go i want to mention the fact that you will also be uh one of the participants of fish Fishtown Pickle Projects, um, Feast of the Seven Pickles. Yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, which is really exciting, mm-hmm. and it's being held in your your one of your original locations, which yes. is yeah, it's Fishtown mm-hmm. Social. We literally yeah. just had them on as well, so oh, the best. <laughs> but um, where can we find you on social media, online, and where will your new location be? Sure. Um, the easiest place to go is our Instagram. We are always, always, always on there. So just at Kismet Bagels. We also have a website, kismetbagels.com. Um, and the address of our new shop pending a Philadelphia zoning hearing uh, in mid-January will be 113 East Gerard Avenue in Fishtown. Well, I look forward to when you do get that approval and you open because it will happen. And um, and I will I will be there celebrating your grand opening with you. Thank, thank you so much. much. Oh, Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you course, for joining us. Philly, Re- Philly Restaurant Reviews dot com for all the information about the show. Emerald's Pollock. You can find me across social media at AR Pollocus, or if you would like to be a sponsor of the show, you can email me at arpolicus at gmail.com. And you can find Gene Blum at ibfoodie2, or you can email him at ibfoodie2 at, g- at yahoo.com. And happy Tuesday, everyone. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.